Are you flipping me off? No. No. <laughs> Your eyesight is going there, Grandpa. Yeah, no, I can see. This is gas. Old man, what do you look mean? at my life. What do you mean I'm not flipping you off? 24 and there's so much more. Are you just singing to record it so you could just put it in as an outtake? And so you can have that guy who said your voice was good say your voice was good again. And cut. <laughs> he just said it for because he couldn't think of anything else. Well, way to fall on my trap, my Jedi mind <laughs> trick. These are not the droids you're looking for. Welcome, everybody. I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Tradesplaining. We're two American expats and development professionals living in Geneva, Switzerland. We're here to have sharp, fun conversations with cool people as we touch on issues of trade, current events, and expat life. Along the way, we'll poke a little fun at international development and ourselves, already from the perspective of a millennial who hasn't done much yet, and myself, a seasoned, middle-aged middle manager. Our goal is to get to the heart of today's big issues and figure out what's important and why. In other words, we're here to make trade great again, one episode at a time. And remember, folks, these views do not represent the views of any organization, our families, or even each other. Welcome, everyone. It's episode six of Tradesplaining. We've got a special episode for you today. This one will be focusing on the upcoming U.S. elections, which are happening ah today. That's right, everybody. This is your election explainer for those expats outside the U.S. and those just interested in U.S. politics. We'll have a couple of interesting Geneva snippets, and we'll look at one important piece of U.N. terminology. Let's get into it. Why are you pointing at me? Because that's somehow, I feel like it's they, more natural when they we start can't pointing at each other. Yeah, okay. No? Okay. okay, be natural. Are we on video here? We're moving. I'm moving on. Be. Moving on. Got it, got it. Well, everybody, we thought we were done, but it seems the hate mail keeps on pouring in. We've got some additional constructive feedback since last week. Rob, why don't you start us off? Thanks very much, Artie. We have an English teacher who's listening who says when we use the phrase, use different adjectives in our UN Word of the Day segment, actually we're proposing other forms of speech such as nouns or phrases. So we need to be a little more accurate the way we do that. Potatoes, potatoes. Let's call the whole thing off. Both of those are nouns. You say tomato, I say tomato. Neither one's an adjective. I think that's the, that's the point we're trying to get at with this particular review. I think it's subjective, really. One man's adjective is another man's freedom fighter. Thanks. I mean, and thinking of freedom fighters and subjectivity, you've got a comment came in from Jersey. That's right. Jersey Boy 2000 says, stop making fun of Jersey. It's not that bad. Full disclaimer, that was my cousin. Yeah. And I, he was not happy. I, he, he wrote me a WhatsApp message too. Very sorry to hear that he's not happy. Of course, we have to make fun of Jersey. I don't see how we, I don't see how the, the telecast can continue without it. If you're from Staten Island, you have to make fun of Jersey because you have to look at something that is worse. Ah, okay. So Staten Island's not in Jersey. No, it's not. Student. It's been six episodes in, but we're still playing we're that. Good. We're, we're learning. Gonna, yeah, we're going to beat that dead horse. Another we? one. This is from Central Illinois. The question was, what the hell is Brexit? That makes two of us. We have a nice one from a listener who called us innovative and the thing that podcast really needed. I think this was an old high school friend. Actually, maybe we should read it because this is one of my favorite reviews. The trade splainers are a long overdue addition in the pod sphere. Dash, a smart, accessible, and irreverent discussion of international trade where it truly changes lives. <laughs> I think it could have been a bot. I think Bra it's a bot. Bravo and keep it coming. I think it's a bot. Yeah, a French bot. Alexi from St. Petersburg. <laughs> 
So thank you to the bot world for that review. Anyway, thanks to everyone for that constructive feedback. We won't read the hate mail because this is a child-friendly podcast, but please still keep sending us in those emails at trade.splaining at gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you think and hear your thoughts on how we should do things better. Or as Joe Biden says, build back better. All right, so let's just get into it. As we said, this is the Tradesplaining U.S. election podcast. We're not only talking about this because we are Americans, but also because this, of course, has effects on the rest of the world, right? So we do have to talk about the election. It is the 8 million pound gorilla in the room. And I'm pretty sure, Rob, who wrote that, that is an offensive statement to gorillas. So we don't. We don't. It is the 8 million pound thing in the room. Thing. Elephants were unavailable for comment. Anyway, is, yeah. but I digress. Oh, God. <laughs> you got it in there. You got, you got, I got it, it in there. I never know when it's going to come. <laughs> it's like a stealth ninja. So you have plenty of people talking about the horse race, which we want to get away from because we want to talk a bit more about the issues that are actually at play here with regards to the U.S. elections. So we won't get too technical, but really look at what this all means in the context of the U.S. election, not only for the U.S. domestically, but for the rest of the world internationally. So, Rob, why don't you start us off on the issues that we're thinking about when we are not raging on Twitter? Very good. So the first one, we talk about trade, tradesplainers. So what do you think will happen after this election, in a way, about trade, or what would we like to see? First things first, I don't think that whoever wins U.S. policy, whether foreign policy and trade policy specifically, will go back to the way it was, right? I think the status quo is very much over. I think we won't have America first. We're Biden to win. But we will have a clear focus on the domestic ramifications of trade deals moving forward. So Biden has talked about build back better, made in America programs, things like this, which in some cases fly in the face of, of the trade policy we've become accustomed to. And in terms of what we'd like to see, I think broadly speaking, there needs to be an honest conversation where we're saying, okay, trade policy benefits us on the whole. These are the drawbacks to it, and this is how we're going to address those drawbacks domestically. You know, if you take the example of Switzerland, we have a lot of vocational training, which sort of fills in the gap for the people who don't go to college. I think that's one way, whether you're talking about an increased social safety net more broadly, that's something I would like to see. So we hear in our past episodes, protect the people, not the jobs, right? Mm -hmm. Now, for me, my question is always, what does that look like? Is that universal basic income? Is that healthcare that doesn't depend on your employment, but rather follows you from job to job. You can make a case that that actually leads to more innovation if people have to not worry about where their health insurance is coming from, where their certain level of income is coming from. Each month, they can do the things that they're most productive in. It's, it's more of a theoretical discussion, but I, that's what I would like to see at least. Yeah, no, I think, and I, and I want to come to that related point, which we've heard from Bernard Hochman, we heard it from Mary Owens Thompson, we've heard it even from Daniel, which we'll hear a little bit later, that trade has its role, but that the idea of managing inequality, of addressing these skills, islands, people who don't have the right skills, who are stranded in this economy, has to do with domestic policy. And in many cases, what we've had is a domestic policy that failed in certain ways that doesn't have anything to do with China or international trade. It has to do with our ability to build skills, with our ability to promote development of technology and innovation in a way that is creating a, an environment for companies that's competitive. The Economist has been reporting, I would say, for six years on the drop in competitive pressures in the U.S., on the power, growing power of companies. So we'd like to see that more rather than 
a headline-grabbing trade wars, I think. Yeah, I think it's the evidence is clear that trade wars are hurting more than helping. So there has not been a reshoring, if you will, of manufacturing jobs. And that's the same for whether you're talking about chip makers in, in, in Wisconsin who promised factories that would make LED TVs, for example. Those are mm. not happening. If you're talking about U.S. steel manufacturers, which had said they're building plants, those are not happening. Prices are going up on certain products, soybeans, for example, and we are subsidizing those increases in, in soybean costs. So they're not being passed on to the consumer. However, it is increasing the deficit. We have been paying billions and billions of dollars to offset the cost of a trade war. right? Mm -hmm. So trade wars sound great, but are not leading to any sort of productive outcomes, positive outcomes. So related to that, I think also is, I mean, I I'm a believer in multilateralism. I think there are ways to make it better. WTO, for instance, is an organization that can work better. But I think there's an open question now about who really wants reform. That's shocking, actually. You're in the multilateral system and you support it. I support it, but of course Shocker. it can always be better. Shocker. <laughs> we can always build it back better. I, I'm, a, I'm a believer I do think reform can help. Why not? We are not against it, and a lot of people have started to put forward proposals. So I'd like to see a good faith effort on the part of whatever administration comes to think about how it can work better. Going back to a pre-WTO, pre-international rules-based system isn't possible. I don't think it's even feasible. Nobody's saying it shouldn't be reformed, but there has to be goodwill. One last point, which I'm hoping the election will, you know, in a way, political speech has changed. Maybe this election will allow us to talk about many more things now than just the current American president and how outraged we are. We can get back to having a wider variety of conversations, that and, of course, COVID. Like, where do you golf in your early retirement? How much did your house cost was the main subject of conversation before this. <laughs> how much did you pay in taxes? <laughs> so political speech has changed. We talk a lot about how things are phrased, how they're put. And we saw with current American president that he engages in a different way. So through Twitter, in a more, what I've heard described as a more informal type of speech. Or as some family members I know say, telling it like it is. Telling it like it is. So this is felt to be, it's more informal, but is it more accessible? Is it more authentic in a way? Because before we had expected our politicians to talk in a certain way. And those ways they talked were not fully authentic. So if I say, I'm resigning to spend more time with my family. PP pee -pee tape. Not, it's, not, it's not the reason, right? It's not the reason. So do you think political speech has changed forever? I think it's going to be changing in the short term. I mean, I think there are degrees of this, right? I think me growing up as a millennial, I was always quite cynical as a young kid, right? I'm still a young man, but before... before I I'm shaking my head, folks. I was much more cynical. I thought everything was the same and the system was corrupt and yada, yada, yada. And of course, on that level, I can empathize with people who say that people are not authentic. However, there's a limit to that, right? I don't think we should be talking about things in a very vulgar context or using curse words to describe certain elements. However, we need to be a bit more honest within the way we speak. I don't know if it's more authenticity because what's authentic for somebody in Iowa is maybe not as authentic for somebody in Brooklyn or Jersey, right? Yeah, I think also we... And they have different accents. I don't think a corn husker in Iowa would be able to tell what Uncle Vito in Brooklyn has to say. I don't think they would understand each other. I don't even think in Iowa they would know what a corn husker in Iowa would be because that's Nebraska. You see, you see what I mean? They're making my <laughs> point for me. It's not bad. It's not bad. Now, by the same token, Artie, I agree that elite speech 
had its weaknesses and maybe this this day, the day of that is gone it was inauthentic in certain ways so could there be a positive yes perhaps we can be more direct and more authentic in our political speech but i think what we say still matters i, I think it's a direct offshoot of the feeling in the country right so if you take the us as we we're, we're focusing on people are angry and that's represented in the way we talk about things. So I think whatever happens in this election, say or Biden to come in, I think of focusing on domestic policies is is the right way to go about it because we have to be honest and say we have not been honest enough in the way we talk about these things. Free trade is great. Well, we should be honest. We'll be, what, but what we, we have be not been honest. honest. Well, for example, telling people that a trade deal won't affect their current job when we have good indication that it will in the short to medium term is not honest enough. We can say we as a country and economy are not competitive enough at the moment. This trade deal will help us become more competitive by putting money into the economy. And this is how we're going to help you offset any potential losses in your industry. Yeah. So you tell somebody, if you take this current election, fracking has been a big deal. The U.S. is now the biggest energy producer in the world, right, because of fracking. And this has brought a lot of jobs. Do we have to bleep that? Fracking? Yeah. No, we don't. It's a word. Okay. 12-year-old. Who's who, who's who's the millennial here? Fracking guy. Fracking. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, please go ahead. If we take fracking as an example, one thing... What is fracking? Fracking is hydraulic fracturing, I think is the full term. It's basically where you shoot a lot of water into the ground. It cracks open the rocks, releases gases. That gas is then converted into liquefied natural gas. And this is then an energy product is what we use to... Right. To, to and it has certain drawbacks in terms of... It has it drawbacks. Cause, uh, However, it has created jobs. It's been a boom for Western Pennsylvania, one of these battleground states. So one accusation being lobbed against Biden is that he wants to end fracking, which obviously scares certain people, right? Now, an honest discussion would be Yes, eventually we should be moving away from fracking, and this would affect your jobs as it is. However, the economy is not static. So this is how we're going to offset. Let's say those people who were doing fracking jobs, we're going to retrain them on solar energy, wind energy. It's like saying to somebody at IBM in the 60s or the 70s, we're not going to be introducing MacBooks because they're changing the way you've already been coding. Instead, you're telling them, actually, learn how to code in, in Mac. You're still in the same industry, but mm. you're doing a different thing. And we, I guess we have to work. be honest also to say there, this will end. We can't do the same thing. We can't, we can't reverse the course of history. We have to lean into it. Let's face it, a lot of uh, folks in some of these industries will be difficult to retrain. This is not an obvious thing to do. I, I'm not I would like us to focus on it, but it's not an obvious thing to do. Well, I'm not saying even teaching a cab driver how to code, which they do in Belgium, actually, by the way. They yeah. are teaching trying to teach cab drivers how to code, increase their income. I'm not even talking about that. That's yeah. for me as apples to oranges. I'm saying if you're a computer programmer, you can program code, right? If you're working in energy, you can be taught to do an, a different type of energy within that same industry. But Solar have, and fracking? Yeah. No way. Energy man. Energy? There's nothing to do with it. What, do you think they knew about fracking before they started fracking? See what <laughs> I did there? Yes. <laughs> I don't know that they knew about fracking. Exactly. Before they started fracking. Exactly. So let's at least be honest. And we haven't done that enough. So then after the fact, if promises aren't kept, then politicians look like cynics. And this breeds more anger and distrust in, in politics and you get to where you are today. So maybe we can leave it there. We're not talking horse race stuff, but I think we do have some hopes about some more investment in the election system and making it more robust. We have some hopes about a trade policy, although we don't think it's going to change radically I do think there's a role for us in the multilateral system and in good faith efforts to improve it. 
I think there's a lot of hopes for domestic policy. How do we address these issues of trade-offs that you've mentioned, skill building? Monopolies. These things are, yeah, these things are domestic issues. They're not trade issues. And last, about political speech. Maybe more authenticity is good, but what we say matters. Get out there and vote, everybody, and we'll see you the episode after. And remember, for all you Republicans out there, my theory on voting is do it early and often. Hashtag for all those fraud. For all those Republicans out there, get yourself up early on Wednesday. You get out there and you get your vote. And also subscribe to this podcast. Subscribe to this podcast. <laughs> for more hot takes. <laughs> Daniel Warner is a U.S. and Swiss citizen. He's earned his B.A. in philosophy from Amherst, Ph.D. in political science from the Graduate Institute. He's written a whole ton of books, a thesis, and later was awarded the Marie Schapler Prize by the Société Académique de Genève in 1991. Whew, this is a lot. He's lectured, published extensively on multilateralism, U.S. foreign policy, ethics, international law, He's author, editor, co-editor of a bunch of books, numerous articles, guest lecturer. And before trade splaining, he did also dabble in some uh, commentating. That's right. Before trade splaining, Dr. Warner has been a commentator on television and radio throughout the world, including CNN Money, hashtag rest in peace, BBC, National Public Radio, and others. He was also a speechwriter to Bobby Kennedy, my old job, and he was also a teacher in the Bronx, New York, where he was born and raised and has been a ranked tennis player. Not my old job. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Why don't we just jump into it, Rob? Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you get to Geneva? What was I that like? I made a wrong turn. <laughs> how, how did that happen? Where did you start? <laughs> well, I mean, instead of uh, someone asked me to go to Vietnam and I didn't think it was where I wanted to go, so in an unofficial civil service alternative, I taught for four years in the inner city of New York and then decided it was time to go someplace else and picked up a car with my ex-wife in Rome and wound up camping in Geneva that I kept saying it was too green for anyone normal to live. There were no cigarette butts <laughs> or abandoned cars and then found a job on a mountaintop and taught in a private school in Switzerland for 14 years, and then came down from the mountain to get my PhD at the Graduate Institute mm. and couldn't leave for 25 years. So we were wondering about the accent. Would you say you've kind of lost your accent? Carouge, <laughs> I speak with a distinct Carouge accent. Or Vaudois. I lived in Vaudois for 14 years. So it's a mixture of Vaudois and Geneva. And Carouge, yeah. I feel like it's harder to keep that accent after all these years than it is to lose it. You should hear it in French. It's even more charming. <laughs> we had an episode oui. like that. Mais oui. <laughs> So would you say a lot has changed since those days? I mean, politics in general, Geneva, what's different? Or is it a little bit more of the same? You when know, I first came here in 1972, no one understood why an American was coming to Europe. They thought I was a draft dodger, mm. uh, which got me in a lot of bar fights. Mm. After that, I came down and people still thought the United States was the place to be. When I was at the Graduate Institute, if you'd given people scholarships to Harvard, they all would have left. And now, years later, no one has said to me, oh, we now understand you were right, but the United States is still is definitely not held in the kind of awe that it was held when I came here in 72. 
And that's not since 2016. That's That's been a gradual process. That's been a gradual process. We used to have more popularity of Americans living in Geneva. A lot of people hide, especially Republicans. Staying on this, has there been anything in particular that's starkly different between U.S. politics now versus back then? You had mentioned that people, everybody wanted to go to Harvard and nobody would, would think twice back then and nowadays it's a bit different. When do you think this started to change? Well, there were two things going on at the same time. Three, actually. The first is the lack of American leadership. When I did the 50th anniversary of the UN in Geneva, we had Boutrous Boutrous Ghali. We had the seven Conseil d'État. And the United States, as I wrote at the time, really was the moving force behind international Geneva. Rockefeller, Ford, and Carnegie Foundations made this town. And the United States was the leader in the multilateral system. Since then, the influence of the United States in the international organizations has definitely gone down, as well as in many multinational corporations. So the presence of the United States here has basically disappeared. There's a vacuum of leadership, which to some extent the Chinese have taken over. But we see that the system, the UN system, is really paralyzed now. The second would be the rise of other countries, Brazil, the BRICS. But the third is even more interesting to me. It's the rise of the private sector. We have Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple. And you have in Geneva, for example, the International Telecommunications Union has states. But in fact, it's private companies like Sony, uh, which are behind that. So let me ask you this then. So U.S. leadership maybe inevitably has ebbed a bit. Is this a bad thing? And would you, this this rise of the private sector, is that a good thing? Would we want them more involved in these kinds of organizations? Well, I think absolutely true. I mean, at one point in my naive younger age, I tried to have the International Labor Organization talk to the World Trade Organization. So you have these what we call silos of organizations and there's very little dynamic between them. On the other hand, a trade deal has implications for labor, has implications for the environment, but they're not talking to each other and they're not being as inclusive as they should. That's why there are lots of things we call workarounds, like the World Economic Forum that are working around the UN. So the question on the 75th anniversary of the UN is can they get into the 21st century? What's the answer? That's you're, up you're to our them. Expert. I think the head of it now is, is, is making great leeway. And when I see the huge events that we had for the 50th, the 75th because of the pandemic, but in general, the United States sent to the commemoration of the 75th anniversary in New York, sent the deputy representative of the United States to the UN in New York, didn't even send the vice president secretary of state. So that's an indication of the lack of interest in the current government. Whether any future government can come back to that, I doubt it. I think that's also because that guy was the only person who didn't have COVID. Could be the only non-positive who didn't test positive member of the U.S. <laughs> that administration. <laughs> but let me ask you this: so maybe so it's been a generational change. Already mentioned. You know, we have three generations on this call, and 
are you hopeful for Artie's generation? Because he's not hopeful for mine. You know, is that really what we need? We just need a passing of the baton and we need people in their 30s and younger to run things. Because we have two 70-year-olds going for 70-plus-year-olds going for U.S. Careful, president. Careful, now. I don't want you insulting 70-year-olds. I get very aggressive. Remember, I'm from the Bronx, my friend. This, don't is, forget. This okay? is why we didn't don't do this forget. in person. Okay, yeah. I'm sure you're going to cut that out, too. But Present company accepted, of course, but we've got two uh, people who are well over 70 battling it out for the U.S. presidency. Is it really, do we just need a generational change? So in 10 years, all will be well, we'll be singing Kumbaya. I mean, the problem with the younger generation and all of these machines that they have that I don't understand is they don't understand two things. One is power and the second is legitimacy. I mean, the question is you've got to get something done and you get something done by power. And the second thing is legitimacy. Who are you? And when I taught young diplomats, the question was, you need a certain authority. The authority being, I work for a government, I work for an NGO, Human Rights Watch or whatever, you two work for a recognized organization. That I understand. But someone who just puts out a blog or whatever has no legitimacy. And that's what the younger generation doesn't. Or a podcast. Well, I mean, anyone can podcast like you guys. I mean, you know. But we do it well, is what you meant to say. <laughs> yeah, sorry. We'll, 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 we will cut that in. Yeah, that will be a big devil feature. Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. So if my daughter says a pox on all your houses, Democrats, Republicans are the same, the the world is melting down, the trade is producing bad results, all these kinds of things, I'm not sure I have a good answer for her. Do you think legitimacy and power are are a good answer to her, or should I just tell her, bide your time? No, you tell her, I'm your father, shut up and listen to me. <laughs> at a certain point, I mean, that's what I tell my kids, and still do, you know. Uh, no, someone like Bill Gates goes up to the WHO, World Health Organization, and basically tells them what to do because his legitimacy is money. So money is a form of power. Other than that, nothing's going to get done. Now, I don't mean everyone has to be rich, nor does everyone have to have a certain position. Greta has power. Greta got power because the media followed her and she had a message that caught on. But can she get something done? That we have to see in the long run. But I think the young people have that question of legitimacy remains unanswered. So you're not necessarily saying power of a certain form. You're basically saying you need to have power, whether that be speech, have the media behind you like Greta, or have money like Bill Gates. You're saying whatever it is, the point is you have to choose to wield that power and make a concerted effort to That's gain right. and wield it. Something has to get done at the end of the day. I'm a consequentialist. So if I look at you guys and say, what do you do? I'm not interested in your job title. I'm interested at the end of the day, what have you done to make the world a better place? This podcast. This is, yeah, this is our answer. Would you, would you, <laughs> should we rephrase that? There's, there's a silence on the other. I think, is he muted? What, there's a silence on the other. I don't know. I no, he... I wanted to hear, you know, your day jobs, I noticed were excluded. So we have watched, for instance, on our side, that trade supply chains, even after talking a lot about fairness, inclusion, sustainability, are not fair, inclusive, or sustainable, really. And we've also seen 
supply chains put under a lot of pressure due to COVID. We've all seen this. Mm. And we see the rules-based system that we thought was a kind of given shaking and, and creaking a little bit. So tell us, what are your hopes for trade? Do you think trade will change? Or is trade just a very small part of, of our larger narrative? Trade to me is highly complicated because first you're mostly dealing with countries at the World Trade Organization. But on the other hand, you're dealing with companies. So what's the relation between the country and the company? And the question of supply chain and in the field, it's very difficult to see what the relationship is between an agreement made in Geneva at a high level and all the way down the food chain to people in the field and how they're reacting, what the pollution is, what the labor standards are. Is it fair? Is it not fair? So the question of norm setting can be done in Geneva all the time. The question is what's happening in the field and are those norms being carried out? And those people, countries not obeying the norms, are they being punished? The first time Sergio de Mello came to the High Commissioner for Human Rights, the first thing he did was to go to Mike Moore, who was head of the World Trade Organization, and said, Mike, I want to speak to you because you're the only organization in Geneva who can punish people. Hmm. With a, with punish a dispute, people. With All the other organizations in norm setting, but they have difficulty giving sanctions. Hmm. Shaming is not the same as the WTO saying that's going to cost you a couple hundred million. Hmm. Different ballpark. So the norm setting down the chain is difficult to follow. Okay. I think maybe now we'll move to... The important stuff. Yeah. The Geneva-based question. <laughs> the Geneva questions. Before we get to the slightly silly stuff, is there anything you've learned about the U.S. or, or New York or Bronx or wherever while living as an expat that you didn't notice before? So you have a, a much longer sample size than, than most people we meet, most expats we meet in Geneva. The lesson in the 2016 election was that I was convinced that Clinton would win. And I read the New York Times, the New Yorker, New York Review of Books, and I discovered that there was a whole America out there that I had forgotten or lost contact with. Mm. I never had great contact. Even Staten Island is the end of the world for me. I mean, Queens is Every, like Everybody. Uh, frankly, everybody to Staten Island is the end of the oh, world. It's an island. Well, we agree. That's, shi okay. that's <laughs> Shining Island only, on a hill. The only truly Republican <laughs> borough in New York City. Yeah, yes. I'm proud of it. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to get so, so much lost, To some extent, uh, in 2016, when I announced that Clinton would win, uh, this time I say nothing. Mm. I said four years ago I was wrong. Everyone reminds me. So I'm going to just say I'll wait and see. So I guess the Geneva questions, we start with this. One of the things uh, that marks our existence here in Geneva, have you had your bike stolen yet? I don't have a bike, and my wife's bike has never been stolen. So, But you've never had a bike in, in I don't ride a bike in Geneva. I take <laughs> the train and the bus. <laughs> I don't know if we can call you an expert without a stolen bike. The survey is all messed up now. Well, we'll, we'll check on that. We'll come back to you. <laughs> this one is close to my heart. We talk about fondue and, and things like this, but everybody knows the national dish, at least in Geneva, is, is kebab. What is your favorite kebab place in Geneva? I'm like, not into kebab. I, I, I kind of knew he was going to say and that. It, I had a feeling. Think about, no, that's true. <laughs> Where There's are one you in living? Carouge. I'm very Carouge. 
Carouge. And there is a kebab place in Carouge. So if I want kebab, I go to uh, Saint Joseph, the Rue Saint Joseph. There's one kebab place in, in Carouge. Carouge. Good. Wow, that's really far away. I don't even Carouge? know. Carouge? It's, like, it's like 10 minutes away. Carouge is the center of Geneva. I don't think I've got a visa. It's like 15 minutes I away. I have to cross the lake. If you come to Carouge on a Saturday, the Marche de Carouge, Saturday morning, it's like a Bronx or Brooklyn neighborhood. People come from all over. I'm going to guess it it's quieter. It has a neighborhood flavor that's very New York. I'm going to guess, though, it's quieter. I'm having flashbacks of Raging Bull <laughs> and overcooking the steak when, when you're explaining Kahush. <laughs> and of course, the last one. No, we've got two more, actually. Okay, go ahead. So, we talked about kebab, fondue. Yes or no? And which is the favorite? Which is the best, in your humble opinion, in Geneva? The best restaurant for fondue. There used to be one on Saint-Joseph in Carouge. There is in Saconet, Grand Saconet, the Café du Soleil. Yes. Oh, yes. boy. Has the reputation of being the best. Bravo. This is, this is the right, this was the right this answer. This is actually the, the first. Was looking no, for. But, 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 but the real question you want to ask me is, how long did it take you to learn that you shouldn't drink beer with a fondue? <laughs> I think we know the, the answer. The, f- the, fir- is, the first five minutes. <laughs> if you make a fondue, what le- number are you supposed to make with the spoon to keep it mixed? Six, eight. 12. Very good. Voila. Eight. eight. What? Figure eight. eight. A figure eight? Yeah. Yes. Ask I didn't Sue. take, they took calligraphy when you guys went to school? I don't Figure eight. What? Artie's wondering how you can order that. Can I order that? Is yeah, it, can I order that online? Is it on Uber Eats? <laughs> <laughs> All right, last question. So this is one that polarizes citizens of massively Geneva, polarizing. massively polarized. I would argue even more so than U.S. voters today. Are you a co-op person or a Migro person? I go to both of them. I'm an equal opportunity consumer. This is a, this doesn't compute. I don't even know where to go with this. You can't mark both on of a Of course survey. it's co-op. You can't vote <laughs> both Republican and Democrat. This is a... He's, a, he's what we call an undecided. He's a, he's a market... He's a late-breaking voter. Market-driven. I guess we're but all... I will, I will say one of the positive things about the pandemic was people were going to the local farms to buy their vegetables. Mm, true. And, and they should be encouraged to continue to do that. Give back to the local community. And the winemakers as well. And the winemakers. The Geneva wines have gotten, by the way, much better since the time I've been here. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> they're drinkable. And they're not too expensive. It's like 30 bucks for uh, what would cost four euros in France. Look, if the borders are closed. Well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, maybe before we close, you could let us know. We usually do a plug your stuff segment at the end of each of these interviews. And this is, of course, an opportunity for you to let the listeners know where they can find your, your work. Do you tweet, dare I ask? No, I don't tweet, but I have several. I have... Swiss Info, I sometimes write articles, but I do podcasts with Imogen Fuchs on something called Inside Geneva. Mm -hmm. I have my blog in English on the Tribune de Genève, and I write frequently for a website called Counterpunch. Daniel Warner, thank you so much for coming on. We really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. It's nice to see someone from Staten Island. It's been a long time. There's more of us. Most people forget it. 
there's more of us. <laughs> <laughs> bye bye. Take care. Bye bye. Enjoyed you. it. Thank you guys. Bye. Thank you. Well, everybody, that brings us to our next segment. That's right, everyone's favorite, Overheard at the UN Beach. And what do we talk about in this segment, Artie? This is where we get snippets of information sent to us confidentially, of course, by people who work at the UN or in international organizations and the things they've heard at the UN Beach Club. Now, some of you may be asking yourselves, Artie, you knucklehead, it's November. The UN Beach Club is closed. It's too cold. Mm -hmm. And my response to that would be, no, it's not because it's always open in our hearts and in our minds. Anyway, Rob, why don't we just jump into it? What are some things you've been hearing at the UN Beach from your sources on the ground? Pretty important to note, uh, Artie, that a couple of days ago, it's been World Lemur Day. Lemur Day. World Lemur Day. Lemur, is that a canton? No, it's a little animal with cool eyes and a stripy tail. Many of them live in Madagascar, Ah. but not all. So this was, as you probably know, it's been World Lemur Festival Month. And I thought it would be a good chance for me just to share with you a couple points about lemurs that I think, well, ever, our listeners, really everybody should know. I'm ready. So lemurs apparently are one of the only animals apart from humans who get high. So they chomp different foods and they chill. Poppy seeds? Millipedes, I guess, can give you a little bit of a high out there if you're a, if you're a lemur. <laughs> Lord knows I've tried. We've tried. Everybody's everybody's tried millipedes one night. Who among us has not tried a millipede? Pre kebab, pre kebab. Pre kebab. Who hasn't who hasn't fired up a couple of millipedes? Well, if the kebab takes too long, you got to eat something. <laughs> Second, they're only the only other primate besides. I was going to say you and me, but it's just me. I have brown. Eyes. Who has baby blue eyes? Who's got those blue eyes? Third, lemurs are led by females, so females lead lemur communities. So are they German? They're not. They're not German. <laughs> They're not German. Angie, so, I still love you, baby. I don't know where we're going with that. Angie. So they, they, they tend to provide leadership in the groups. Also, they snatch food away from the males, kick them out of sleeping spots, and they actually show physical aggression. So I see what you're going with this. So this is we're not going to take that any further, remember? I, I could draw some parallels, but I won't feedback. because we still want listeners. So uh, I, I just wanted to say to everybody, I hope you enjoyed the global world lemur festival and celebrated global lemur day if you didn't perhaps next time. year there's still time i i think there there isn't time it's over every day can over. be world lemur day because i could tell somebody tomorrow is world lemur day yeah. and they would believe me well everybody that brings us to our next segment this one's called this week in local news you wouldn't believe this was true unless you lived in Geneva. Rob, why don't you take it away? Because we know you are a good purveyor of local news. I do monitor local news a lot for our friends, the trees. Geneva, this has been a very, has been a hot button issue. Now it's, it's really ramping up. So there's been a, there was a press conference. There was a group that has described cutting of 21 perfectly healthy trees as a crime. Or as we say in French, arbicide. This could be arbicide. 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 I, don't, I, don't, I think you made that up. So the, the press conference holders have put out a referendum now to stop a construction of a 24-unit housing structure. Complex. Due to these cutting of these, of these 21 healthy trees. They said they're not against housing units, but if this has to be the cost, they're absolutely not going to tolerate it. 
and they said they would take this to the Supreme Court. So you're talking a lot about, you know, will the Supreme Court decide the U.S. presidential election and so on? Here, we're talking about real issues going to the Supreme Court, and that is, will we cut these 21 healthy trees? And I, and I note healthy trees. Not to get too pedantic, but if they were to cut, say, 10 trees, would that still count as a herbicide? Herbicide. Herbicide. I don't think this is. I don't think. I don't think they're prepared to negotiate. And also, I think on the side of the of the mayor's office, they said the same. We will not be blackmailed. In principle, we'd like to move the trees, we'd like to plant new trees, but we will not be blackmailed by these by these folks. Well, folks, that about wraps up this week's episode. We'd like to thank our guest Daniel Warner for joining us and discussing all things U.S. elections the state of global affairs, and the intricacies of the Kauj accent. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode as much as we did. Also, don't forget to download this episode and subscribe to make sure you catch the new ones coming up. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google, or others. And make sure you check out the next episode coming up in just a week or so's time. And don't forget to tell your friends. Until then, stay classy, world.